pictured here, probably my favorite band when I was in college, Jars of Clay, uh, 90s acoustic soft grunge band. Here's the cover, it kind of has those uh, moody overtones, very, very 19, uh, 1990s-ish. And I've never been a very big Canterbury Christian music fan, but when I go back and I listen to this, this particular album, because the other albums, I don't think they're any good, but this first album, they're kind of a one-hit wonder. And I think when I go back and listen, even decades later, I was like, this isn't half bad. It's, it's pretty good. Any Jars of Clay's fans out there? A couple. We're probably dating. You, you are to us? I feel like I'm kind of dating myself here. Cause, but good band, even better metaphor. Because instead of being told over and over again, like how you're the greatest, you can accomplish anything your mind, um, you set your mind to. And, and I understand the reason why teachers do that is because like a lot of kids, they don't have a sense of, of personal value and, and um, they're trying to counteract that. But to just say to someone, hey, you're a jar of clay, that's, that's a humbler and more grounded way of seeing ourselves. So in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul makes at least three powerful assertions that we'll cover. He says, number one, we are genuinely jars of clay. And my suspicion is that we don't take that seriously. (laughs) Um, We don't live um, with that as, as an expectation for ourselves. Number two, we are meant to house inside of us a treasure, a priceless treasure. And then number three, that treasure is the resurrected life of Jesus Christ through his spirit, as Jonathan was reading about from Romans. Um, Paul believed that the resurrection of Jesus was not, was not this thing confined into the future, like the future life beyond the grave, but resurrection, resurrecting power, is, is something that is part of the Christian experience right now. Um, that Easter treasure, the Easter treasure is what made it possible for him to endure so much pain and suffering. And I frankly believe it, it's what gets us through all the, the pain and suffering this world throws at us. So uh, that's where we're going to go uh, overall. 2 Corinthians 2, 4, uh, 4 verse 7. Uh, one disclaimer, this is not, this sermon is not meant to be like a comprehensive treatment on the Christian view of pain and suffering. I feel like I'm just covering 1 to 2 percent of it. And I'm really trying to reframe for you just maybe something, that, reframe a way you may have not thought about it or seen it before. So there, disclaimer over. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed we always carry around in our body the death of jesus so that the life of jesus may also be revealed in our body for we who are alive are always being given over to death for jesus sake so that his life may be also revealed in our mortal body and skip ahead to 14 because we know that the one who raised the lord jesus from the dead will also raise us with jesus and present us with you to himself all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us 
an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Never been on an archaeological dig before. Everything that I've read about or know about it is that the primary item you discover on archaeological digs, no matter what part of the world you're in, are what? Are shards. Are shards, clay pot shards, because, you know, the clay pots, jars of clay were the ubiquitous Tupperware of the ancient world. You know, it'd store wine in it, water, grain, parchment. You know, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, they were preserved, you know, for thousands of years in clay pots. It's so that the metaphor, and I, I'm really just kind of playing with the metaphor this afternoon, it speaks, it speaks to a number of things, right? It speaks to, of course, to our fragility, um, and maybe our unrealistic expectations of ourselves because we are not made of titanium steel. We're not made of Kevlar. Paul is saying, in essence, this is us. You can you know, go to the hardware store and buy that for 99 cents. You know, it's just an orange terracotta pot. You put a plant in it, a jar of clay. It's going to crack. It's going to chip easily. Dime a dozen, easily discarded. He says, he says about himself, like, I am a, a, a jar of clay. Uh, and, and the reason he does so, why is he going with this metaphor? Well, a large part of his second letter to the Corinthians is to address critics who basically say, this guy, is, this guy suffers way too much. Uh, I mean, if God is with somebody, you would think that God would bless them. He, he's not a great public speaker. He's not a charismatic personality. He's actually kind of a, a prickly personality. And man, he suffered a lot, right? He, Paul, he even he says so in the letter, he, how he endured countless beatings, countless imprisonments. He said, once I was pelted with stones. He was literally stoned and still survived. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. Think about that. Three times he was shipwrecked in the Mediterranean. I mean, people would be like, we've sailed the Mediterranean all our lives and we haven't been shipwrecked. He's like, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. What? You know, God protects those he loves. This man, he's not blessed, he's cursed. To which he replies, I am a jar of clay, and I hold inside of me a priceless treasure. How does it feel? Um, How does it feel to be a jar of clay in a shattering world? Well, he answers that for us in verses 8 and 9. It feels like you are hard-pressed on every side. You are perplexed. (laughs) You are confused. In his case... He is persecuted, he is opposed, he is struck down. A few years ago, David Brooks of the New York Times wrote a column where he put out an invitation to his readers, all of his readers who are 70 years old or older, to write and tell their own personal stories about what they had learned in their lifetimes. You know, David Brooks kind of, he likes to do that kind of stuff, and I enjoy reading him. Um, So you write me, he said, tell me what I can pass on to my readers about what you have learned over the course of your life. And one of the letters he receives back was from a, from a man by the name of Charles Snelling. Uh, Snelling said, I lived, I've lived kind of a charmed life. Um, I married a woman that I was head over heels for. I love. Her name is Adrian. We have five kids. He said, for 55 years, we were married, and she took care of me so well. Like, she's just the, the best she possibly could. About six years ago, she got Alzheimer's, and so the roles reversed. And so I've been um, 
you know, her caregiver. The tables flipped, and she'd been taking care of me, and now I've, I take care of her. He said, about this experience, it has been rich and humanizing, and it, is, it has made such a profound change in me to, to ha- kind of have a shoe on the other foot, so to speak, and uh, he talked about how all these other people in his life had seen the changes that had taken place in him, and his family said, oh, it's wonderful. We, we never would have believed that you would have stayed and loved Adrian the way you did. He writes this beautiful letter to the New York Times. He gets, you know, congratulatory responses they, after they publish it, and four months later, the news breaks that Charles Snelling killed himself and killed his wife in a, in a murder-suicide. And in a suicide note, he said, I'm quitting because the pain was too much. And David Brooks responded this way in a later column. He said, if you look at life through the calculus of pain, maybe Snelling made the right call. Maybe his moments of pain going forward, caring for his his wife, would have outnumbered his moments of pleasure. But is that how we are meant to decide? We must never underestimate the fact that every human being that stares back at us is a, a, a chipped and cracking jar of clay. <laughs> and um, we've never walked a mile in their shoes. We've never known what they have known. And we've never been subject to the different forces, the battering forces of this world. And um, so how does Paul feel, again, about living as a, as a clay pot in a shattering world? He says, but not crushed, but not in despair, but not abandoned, but not destroyed. Verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And that's, for that reason, verse 16, he says that we don't, we don't lose heart. It's so easy, isn't it? So easy. To completely lose heart in this place. But we don't lose heart. Not completely. Not completely. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day by day. And I just, that contrast, like even though on the outside, it just looks like things are falling apart in us. Like even though, and you can talk about how it manifests in your own body, but even though um, the panic attacks, they just won't stop, they they won't go away. Even though the anxiety is crippling, even though all of it is is going to hell in a handbasket in my own body, inwardly, he says, this is the Christian hope that God is making life there. Um, Not a day goes by without his unfolding grace the grace of the resurrected Lord inside of us, making life there. I mean, is that how you think and feel about your pain and suffering? Uh, it's how he's processing it. You know, the only movies that tend to make me cry are underdog sports movies. I'm a sucker for underdog sports movies. Uh, I don't cry in romances, but I cry at Seabiscuit when... He's on the, the back stretch, and, you know, I cry at Hoosiers, and I cry. One of the best underdog sports movies is the, uh, this one, Rudy. You, might, you know, he, it's based on the true story of a young man who was in love with the Notre Dame football team. He needed to repent of that, but he was in love with Notre Dame football, and he wanted nothing more to play for the team. And so Rudy in the movie is played by um, Sean Astin, 
who is also the actor who plays Samwise Ganji, and, and so it's very hard to see him in both roles. I kind of keep seeing him and, and hearing him as Samwise, but um, the harder Rudy practices, uh, he just, he works, he, he works harder than everybody else, and yet he's no good. I mean, he's too slow. He's undersized. There's no way he's ever going to cut it. There's no way he's going to, no way that he's going to make the Notre Dame football team as a walk-on. And then uh, there's a kind of poignant moment in the movie, and John found the audio clip. It's a coach and player here. I wish God would put your heart in some of my players' bodies. I don't know. Is that cheesy? Is that it's a little too trite? But isn't that, in a sense, what he has done with us in Christ? Like, he has put Christ in you now. The resurrected Christ is the one that is living inside of you now by his Spirit. Um, he's given, he has given to every believer the, the heart of Christ living in you now. And it is by the, the power of the living Christ in us that somehow we get through the worst, the absolute worst of this life. Um, again, I don't know if you think of things that way uh, or if you think of things that way on really bad days, but we need to think about things that way more, don't we? Here are a few points. Uh, number one, this is a caution, but just because you have the Spirit inside you, it doesn't mean you should somehow become the happiest person in the world. Uh, Paul was not the happiest man on planet Earth. I wonder if you've ever thought of what it would be like to dress up as Mickey Mouse at Disneyland. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, we were there, and my sister and I, I don't know how old I was, but I was snooping around, and I think I went behind one of the curtains is somewhere in the park, and I saw it was either Chip or Dale with his head off. <laughs> it was very traumatizing to see the chipmunk with his head off. Like, I, I can't believe it. There's a human in there. That was a that was a revelation for me. But imagine that you are the man or the woman who's in the mouse costume all day, and uh, what do you what would that be like? Uh, hot, uncomfortable, interesting, because you could put on this alternate persona. Everybody sees you. You're always smiling. Every kid who comes up to you loves you. Every day is the greatest day because you're in the magic kingdom. And in, on some level, like, that sounds very attractive. You can just not be the you you. You just get to be the Mickey Mouse you. Um, and I think that in many respects, we are socialized to do that even in our church culture, right? Is we can... We can be crumbling inside, but we've become very adept at stepping into a religious gathering and we have a smile and everything is all right. Um, but that's not the community that we truly are, is it? If we, the church is a community of chipped, cracking clay pots. It, it, the church is not, you know, Disneyland in costumes. If we take seriously that we are chipped, cracked, clay pots, easily discarded, you know, turning into rubble all the time, then 
Maybe one implication is that we would have community groups where somebody would be going through a painful, dark journey in life, and they'll get asked the question, like, how are you doing? How are things going? And they answer, I stink. (laughs) You know, I feel like I'm getting an F on the pain and suffering test, because that's normally how we self-grade ourselves. I am failing the pain and suffering test right now. And if for six straight weeks or eight straight weeks or ten straight weeks, if that is actually how you are feeling, then you'd be welcome to say, I stink. And you wouldn't feel the pressure of, of saying, oh, but I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Because it may take, it may take a long while to get better. Now, one of the things they said about Paul, we know he was not the happiest man on planet Earth. But he did have remarkable resiliency and fortitude um, as he tapped into the power inside of him. So number two, it's okay if you don't feel the power of the resurrected Christ inside of you much of the time. I mean, I don't. I assume you don't. Paul assumes that you'll feel weak and powerless most of the time. And that is the reason why he prays for his fellow Christians the way that he prays for them. I mean, think of this, one of the most classic prayers comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. He's, he, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how, high and, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the, with the, uh, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And you look at that list there. It's basically, I pray that you would experientially grasp his love and that you would feel experientially his power and you would be, you would be experientially filled with the fullness of the divine. Why would he pray that if it was assumed that, like, we were already there. (laughs) We're not. We're absolutely not. What we are like, by contrast, is a poor family who lives in a dilapidated, uh, double-wide mobile home in the middle of nowhere, um, but right beneath them, they don't realize that there's a gazillion gallons and dollars of oil or some valuable mineral, you know, um, rhodium or something like that, that is right underneath, but it can't be utilized because they're not aware of its presence. And so Paul, he's praying that they would experientially um, become aware of that presence. And I think we got to do a little bit more of that uh, for each other, praying that for each other. I grew up in a branch of Christianity that really focused on the intellectual side of the faith and not so much on the experiential side of the faith. And then, you know, you start walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you get a mile in there, two miles in there, you just, you come to realize that if there's no experiential life of Christ inside of a person when they're in the valley of the shadow of death, I mean, knowing the theological ABCs and X's and O's, it just doesn't, it doesn't get you very far. So we should pray that, um, because the theology is is usually not enough. You got to feel his power. Number three, I think Christianity at its best offers a community which is psychologically real and honest and also draws on the same shared resource. That, is, that resource is, of course, Jesus Christ to get us through. 
So psychologically real and honest. Uh, first, that part. Um, there are support groups for ca- cancer patients. There are support groups for parents who have lost children. There are support groups for families of addicts. Why are support groups, which we have lots of them in the world today, why are they actually so effective? And it's simply this. The best comforters are those who have experienced similar loss and pain and know what it's like to go through it and feel comfortable sort of sharing that experience with you, right? Um, There's a tremendous comfort that can be found in the presence of others who have suffered in similar ways that we have. And so, like, Christianity at its best is a community that's psychologically real and honest and who has people that are just a little further along the journey of pain and suffering than we are, who maybe have walked a mile or two in our own shoes. Um, Christianity at its best is it's church as hospital, church as support group, not church as country club, church's political organization. Um, we look for people who are suffering, and, you know, we rally to them. I was having, I went on a walk this week uh, on the Greenbelt with a friend of mine, and we were talking about how there are certain forms of suffering that are easily overlooked in church. And we gave the example, like, if you have a child who's, in, who's gravely injured in an automobile accident, like say, and gravely injured, and they have some disability that affects them for the rest of their life, uh, a church is going to rally to that family, aren't they? They're going to, like, there's going to be a meal train coming, and there's going to be sympathy cards, and we're going to do all kinds of things to just, to support and express our empathy, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have a child, on the other hand, maybe who struggles with mental illness, maybe who has some, like, deeply debilitating Um, mental condition like if you basically have you suffer in such a way that you cannot see then like nobody calls them (laughs) there's no meal train for them it's so easy for them to just fall through the cracks and i know i think that a church that is looking out into its community finding people who may be suffering and aren't uh, all that obvious is is really one of the most important acts of love that we can do. One of the ways that, that I think that captures it, so this was the Phoenix police officer, uh, oh, I forgot it, I didn't write his name down, but on December the 14th, 2021, he was shot eight times. He, I mean, how do you survive eight gunshot wounds? I don't know, but somehow he did. He spent a um, month on life support, got off of life support, then months and months of rehab, and then th- here he is with his wife while they're still in the hospital. Well, baseball has started, and uh, the Diamondbacks had their first game of the season uh, like a week and a half ago. Guess who they asked to throw out the first pitch of the season? Um, it was him. And I wish that I had the video of it because it's so beautiful. She wheels him out there in the wheelchair on the grass, and he can't get out of the wheelchair on his own. Like, he can't, he can't even stand up on his own after all the rehab. And so she, like, she picks him up, and then she holds him steady. You see, she's got her arms, her hands planted in his armpit right there to hold him steady so that he could throw out the very first pitch of the season. And that, I just see that is what the church can and ought, ought to be, you know. That's what the church ought to be. Christianity is at best, at its best, when it's a community that's psychologically real and honest, and also draws on the same shared resource, Jesus Christ, to get through it. And, you know, she had to have had 
a real support network around her to carry her through. And um, it leads me to number four. I guess this last word of hope, and it is in the passage. But one day, these jars of clay get transformed into something otherworldly. Like we, we don't have to stay jars of clay forever. Paul says that our affliction in this world are hard things. They are renewing us spiritually. Verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As one of the translations puts it, they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That language is so tantalizing. An eternal weight of glory. I'm not sure I even know what that means. Um, He's saying that that there is a a future beauty uh, that awaits us, which is beyond our imaginations, incomparable to anything we know, and it's guaranteed to the members of the kingdom of God, the poor children in the kingdom of God. Um, This well-known quote by Teresa of Avila uh, captures maybe part of it. From heaven, even the most miserable life will look like one night in an inconvenient hotel. Or maybe she should have said, a thousand miserable lives will look like one night in an inconvenient motel. Because in the Christian telling of the story, heaven is a world of love. Heaven a world of restoration. Heaven is a world infinitely more fulfilling and glorious than the most wonderful moments of our earthly lives, like many of the horrendous evils will be made up for after this life is over. Uh, that's what we have to look forward to. So what it means is we don't have to be the happiest people on earth right now um, because we live in a jar of clay existence. We can pray and diligently ser- search for the Spirit's experiential power in our lives, and we can embody as a community, a church uh, that, that really looks after those who are suffering and, and holds them up, always with this future vision ahead of us, that there is an eternal weight of glory that is coming. The same divine glory that would have been fatal to Moses on contact now comes into the hearts of the children of God. And in that way, jars of clay are carrying a priceless treasure, And we are waiting for the day when we come, um, that permanent, glory-filled vessel that God intends us forever to be. Amen.